before I joined the regular army, I was in the Oklahoma Army National Guard. And during one of our training sessions, we went to Camp Gruber, Oklahoma, to do our training. And they set us up, set up our tents and such outside of the urban warfare village. And urban warfare village is kind of what it sounds like. It's where you go to train to do fighting in cities instead of in the woods. And they had moved us to the outside edges of it. And there was one main building in there. And they had moved our battalion headquarters into that particular building. And so while we were sleeping under the stars, they were sleeping under cover and had some electricity. Once we got set up, our squad leader, uh, his name was Sergeant Reynolds, he went out into the woods and meandered around a little bit. And when he came back, he talked to our platoon leader and our platoon sergeant for about 20 minutes. And then he called everybody over. And he said that he had a, a top secret mission for us to go on. And what we were going to do is we were going to sneak through the woods and then we were going to go into the sewer system of the city and we were going to sneak our way to the main building where the battalion headquarters were and expose to them their lack of, uh, of security, how weak their security was. He said that this because of the nature of the mission, he couldn't force anybody to go. So he needed volunteers. Our platoon sergeant and platoon leader had a, agreed on this mission with these words. They said, you can do whatever you want to do. But if you get caught, we're going to deny we knew anything about it. And it's entirely possible we're going to say specifically we told you not to do it. So there was a great chance we would get in a lot of trouble. About 10 of us volunteered. Out of a platoon of 40, about 10 of us volunteered. And one of the guys that volunteered was a guy named Specialist Martin. And Martin was a pretty good soldier. But Martin had two, oh, two character traits that kind of made him a liability on a mission like this. One is he was kind of scared of the dark. Another is he was claustrophobic. So crawling through dark tunnels to get to the place we were going to go seemed to be he wouldn't be the right kind of guy for it. So Sergeant Reynolds asked him, are you are you sure, Martin, you want to do this? Martin said he he desperately wanted to be a part of this mission and, and he could he could keep it under control. So we 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 taped up our name tape so that they couldn't see who we were. Um, and we, we went on, we, we maneuvered through the woods, we found the entrance to the sewer system, and we started to, to creep our way through. And at first it was dark, but not just pitch dark, because some of the moonlight was still coming in. And then we got to a spot where we had to get on our hands and knees, and we crawled for a couple of hundred feet. And then it opened up a little bit to a spot where we could stand, but you had to stay hunched over. You couldn't stand up all the way. And it was so dark, you could feel it. Have you ever been in a place where it was so dark... It felt like a web. I mean, it was hard to breathe. It was just like, wow. I mean, it was, it was just an oppressive darkness. So we're sneaking through, and the only sound, I mean, it was just eerily quiet in this place. The only sound was the occasional sloshing of our boots in the waters. I mean, we sounded like ninjas going through there at the time. And then suddenly, suddenly, we hear the labored breathing of Specialist Martin. And he's... And so they say, well, you got it? I'm I'm good. So we keep going. And then in a minute, he he loud whispers, can somebody turn on a light? I mean, we're on a top secret covert mission. No, nobody can turn on a light, Martin. Suck it up. Okay, he would he would deal with it. So we keep going. He asked several more times, can somebody turn on a light? And the answer is always no. No, we can't turn on a light. 
Until finally, I mean, it is just dead silence. And suddenly you hear, come on, somebody call a lot. I mean, he is, he is completely melting down. He is having a panic attack. He's dropping his gear, trying to find his flashlight. He's screaming. He's, people are we're having to hold him while somebody finds their flashlight and turns it on so that we can calm him down. And he doesn't give us away. So we get him a lot. We get him calmed down. And we send him on back the way he came so that he can escape the tunnel. And the oppressive darkness that was there. And when he did, he, he missed out on all that we did. Because it was epic. Right? We, we snuck through the tunnels. And we climbed up a ladder. And we came up through the floor. And the look on the guard's face. Oh, it was priceless. The look on the guard's face as a group of dudes came up from the floor right beside him where he was sitting down eating his food. Right? The look on our battalion commander's face, he was having a top secret meeting with all of the bigwigs from our battalion. And they're hunched over a map and they're taking secret document talks and they're doing this. And they look up as we all walk out. And they're like, I mean, they were just dumbfounded at what we were doing. He missed our walking out. Just, I mean, we walked out like we were bosses. We walked out the front door. We came in through the sewers and we walked out the front door like we owned the place. We told the guard out there, you're not doing a very good job. And we just kept on going. He missed when we stole, I mean, we, we commandeered the battalion commander's Humvee and drove it up and down the road until we got it stuck in a ditch and had to bail on that. He missed all of that because of his fears. His fear dominated him. His fear controlled him. His fear kept him from doing something he, he truly, truly wanted to do. Now, you may not have ever had a panic attack in a sewer system. But I'm sure you can understand what it is to let fear keep you from doing something you truly want to do. See, that's the problem with fear. Fear can keep us from doing something we, we really, really do want to do. Fear can keep us from doing something we think we are truly supposed to do. Fear will keep us from sharing the gospel. Fear will keep us from being generous. Fear will keep us from fully devoting our lives to Jesus. Fear will keep us from finding and trying to use our spiritual gifts. Fear will affect us in a lot of ways. But one thing you can be sure of is that fear will always keep you from doing something that you want to do. Probably that you think you're supposed to do and something you think God wants you to do. And if you can relate to the kind of fear that keeps you from doing what you want to do, today I want to give you hope that there is freedom from fear in the presence and the power of Almighty God. Open your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. Verse 17 is what we're starting at. And it's on page 145. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Deuteronomy 7, 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God 
will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is great and awesome. The Lord your God, the great and the awesome God is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little, and you will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, and and you will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hands, and you will destroy their name from under the heaven, so that no one will be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The title of the message this morning is God, Great and Mighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. Father, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, we come to you and we, we want to be a people who are fearless. Father, we want to live by faith and not by fear. And yet our fears seem so real. They seem so oppressive. And God, we do know what it is to let our fears keep us from doing the things that you want us to do. Today, let your Holy Spirit come and open our hearts to receive your word. Father, that we can be a people who are bold and courageous. We are not afraid because we know the great power and the wonderful presence of our God. Help us, Father, to trust in you and to do the things that you want us to do. Help us, Father, to live for your glory and to live lives that demonstrate that you are you are great and you are awesome and you can do all things. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit that I can speak your words and your ways for your glory. Help me, Father, to just to be a vessel that you would use to accomplish your will in our lives. Let your word speak to us, Father, and, and use this time to strengthen the weak, to encourage the discouraged, Lord, to restore the backslider, to save the lost, just to work in our lives and help us to be your people. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for everything. It is in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God had delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, and they had been set free. But that deliverance from the slavery of Egypt was only half of what God had promised to do. God had not only promised to deliver them out of Egyptian bondage, but God had also promised to give them a land that was their own. Despite the fact that God was going to give them the land that was their own, they still had to fight for it. They still had to go in and dispossess or to remove the people who were already there. And God, God knew how the people might feel about this. Because let's put ourselves in their shoes. The nation of Israel, they are not a nation of warriors. For the last 300 years, they have been a nation of slaves. They have been in bondage. They have been beaten. They have been tortured. They, they have not had any free will of their own. And they are going in against nations who are established, who have armies, who have real weapons. And they are probably going to be afraid. And if they let their fear get a hold of them, and if they let their fear overpower them, they will not do what God wants them to do. Now, make no mistake, they want the promised land themselves. For 300 years, that's all they had hoped in. Their God would visit them, their God would bring them out, and their God would take them to the land that flowed with milk and honey. They wanted the land. God wanted them to have the land. He had promised to give them the land. And God knew that they might be afraid. And so he speaks directly to their fear. If you should say in your heart, the nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? If you should say in your heart, there's no way. There's just no way we can do what needs to be done. Then God says, if you think that way, do not be Afraid. And God's encouragement not to be afraid, it's not an empty encouragement. 
you know what an empty encouragement is, right? It's when, like, let's say you're, you feel down, depressed, and somebody says, well, cheer up. Oh, gosh, I never thought about just cheering up. Oh, I'm all better now, right? Or you're angry at someone and somebody says, just let it go. Oh, I never thought about letting it go. Man, that's the, that's the key to it all, right? That's empty encouragement, right? If you're afraid, somebody's saying, don't be scared. That's no help, right? But God doesn't say, don't be afraid, you know, you're great. Don't be afraid, you're awesome. Don't be afraid, you can do it. God says, don't be afraid. And then notice all of the times that God says what He would do. I will inflict defeat upon them. I will give them over to you. I will, I will, I will. I will do it because I'm powerful. Do not be afraid because I am with you. God's reason for them not to be afraid was not based upon them and their abilities, and their own, their own ability to muster up their courage. It was on the fact that their God, their God was great, their God was powerful, and their God was with them. Right? And so the central truth for us to understand today, the power and the presence of God frees me from fear. The power and the presence of God frees me from fear. Right? Because... The God that was powerful then is powerful now. The God that was with them then is the God that is with us now. And there are two reasons that the presence or the power and the presence of God frees us from fear. The first is that God's power has not changed. God's power has not changed. These people were not unfamiliar. The greatness, the power of Almighty God. They were recent recipients of God moving on their behalf and doing powerful things. They were people who had left Egypt under the, the mighty hand of God. And, and God did things. He, when He delivered them, he, it says here that he did, he did great trials upon them. That His hand was against them because He was for the Israelites. Now, if you're not familiar with the, the Exodus story, let me kind of do a quick survey. To get you up to what happened. Jacob and his family, they went to Egypt at the invitation of Pharaoh. And they were given a place to live. Because there was a great famine in the land and the surrounding areas. And it was going to go on for several more years. They were invited to come in to live off the best in the land until the famine was gone. At the time they came, there were around 70 people that came to Egypt. That was about 300 years before the book of Exodus. In that 300 years, Israel had stayed in Egypt. Israel had stayed in Egypt and they had grown and they had multiplied. They had grown and multiplied to the point that Exodus tells us the Pharaoh that was there was afraid of them. He was afraid that if an army invaded Egypt, the Israelites would turn on the Egyptian side with the enemy and Egypt would be overthrown. So he came up with a plan. His plan was first to enslave them. If he made their life bitter and miserable and beat them and made it hard, then surely they would be subjected and they would not continue to grow. But the Bible says the more that he harmed them, the more that he persecuted them, the more that they grew. Because God was on their side. God was actively at work preparing a people to accomplish his will. Seeing that that did not work, Pharaoh came up with another plan. He told the midwives to kill the newborn sons, 
Right? And from what I can gather, the way they were supposed to do it was to be in such a way that they could say the baby was stillborn. Right? And he, that way the, the Israelite sons would die. Well, what would happen then? Well, the Israelite girls would marry Egyptians, and then they would basically become an Egyptian. They would give birth to Egyptians, and over a period of years, the Israelites would basically be bred out of existence. Well, the Bible says that the, that the Hebrew midwives feared God, and they refused, refused to do that. So Pharaoh came up with another plan. Right? No more trying to be sneaky about it. This time it's just, if there's a boy, you kill it. That's just the way it's going to be. We're going to kill all the male children of Israel. Well, one family, they chose to spare their son and hide him from Pharaoh for as long as they could. Then when they could hide him no longer, they, they built a little boat for him and they pushed him out into the Nile. And he went and found his way to the, the daughter of Pharaoh. By the providence of God, she chose to raise him as her own. He was raised as an Egyptian. He was taught the way of the Egyptians. But, but we know that he always understood he was an Israelite. One day, he was out walking among his brethren, and he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and so he killed him to stop the beating. He found out later that everybody knew what he had done, and he feared what Pharaoh would do to him, and so he ran in the desert, and he hid. He hid in the desert for 40 years. During that 40 years, he met a girl, he got married, he had kids, and he became a shepherd. One day, while shepherding his sheep, he saw a strange sight. There was a bush that was burning, but was not being consumed by the fire. So he went up to see what was going on. In seeing that, the Lord spoke to him out of the bush, and the Lord said to Moses, I've seen the problems that my children are facing. I have heard their desperate cries for help, and I am going to deliver them. Moses was ecstatic. God said to Moses, and you're going to go and be my spokesperson and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, that dimmed things a little bit. Moses wasn't quite as excited about that. But in the end, he agreed to go and to do what God told him to do. He went back to Egypt. He stood before Pharaoh and he said, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go. Pharaoh was less than impressed and he replied, who is the Lord that I should listen to him and I should do what he has to say. So Moses left. But all of that was according to the will and the plan of God, because God intended to show his power on behalf of of the nation of Israel. God wanted Egypt and Israel to know that there was only one God and his name wasn't Osiris or Ra or anything else. His name was Yahweh. And so God began to pour out a series of plagues upon the nation of Egypt. In each of these plagues, God showed his mightiness. He showed his superiority over all of the gods of Egypt. He showed his superiority over nature, over the weather, over the water, over the land, over life and over death. And when it was all said and done, Pharaoh said, take your people and go. And the Egyptians gave the Israelites a whole bunch of stuff. And so they were delivered and they had all the stuff that they needed to live. God had delivered them as he said he would. He had provided them as he said he would, because that's just who God is. And that's what God does. So Moses says to the people here, remember, remember well, what the Lord your God did in Egypt. When you see these nations that are greater and mightier than you, 
Remember how great and mighty your God has already been. Remember the exceeding greatness of your God's power. Remember what you've already seen Him do and understand His power has not changed. The God that broke the back of Egypt can deliver these other nations into your hands. Do not be afraid because you have seen the power of Almighty God. You and I, we haven't seen God's power in that way. We haven't seen God break the back of a mighty nation in ways that were clearly the hand of God. But we have Scripture. And Scripture was written for our learning that we, through the patience and the comfort of Scripture, might have hope. See, Scripture was given so that we could read about the greatness and the power of God and we would know that God has not changed, that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the God who had all power then is a God who has all power now. And as we remember the power of God, it would free us from our fears. If we can read stories like the deliverance from Egypt, the creation account, other stories of God's great power, with even a, a, min, a minute amount of faith that those stories are real, they're true, really happen then we will be reminded of the greatness and the power of Almighty God. But I think that's important that, we've, that we see them as real. The story of the Egyptian deliverance, the story of creation, the story of God defeating nations on behalf of His people, miracles that Jesus did. Do we really believe that they happened? Were the Israelites really in bondage for 300 years? Did God really cause the water to turn to blood? Did He really darken out the sun? Did he really do all of that stuff? And if it's just a story, well, then there's no hope. There's no encouragement there. Stories don't give us hope or encouragement that aren't true. But if it's true, if there really is a God that really can do all of that, and if I really can know that God and I'm following that God, then that frees me from my fears. If we are going to be freed from our fears in this life, we have to understand, we have to believe that God's power has not changed. He is just as great, just as awesome, just as mighty today as He was in any other time that we could ever find. He was, he, what He did in Exodus, He could do today if He wanted. He is still God, the one true God. And if we believe, if we believe that God's power has not changed... And that will free us from our fears. Secondly, not only has God's power not changed, but God's promises will not fail. And I think these go in order. Because promises, the ability to follow through with a promise, really, it depends upon the person. I mean, I could promise you that I could give you a million dollars. But I don't actually have the ability to follow through with that. I can't give you a million dollars. I could tell Scott if he jumped off the school, I would catch him like this. But I don't have the ability to follow through with that promise. Right? Do I believe, if I believe that God's power has not changed, then I can trust that God's promises will not fail. 
But if I am not convinced that God's power has not changed, if I am not convinced that God can do what He says He can do, then I will always wonder if God's promises are true. So the Israelites, Moses reminds them that God's power has not changed. The God that delivered you from Egypt is the God that will be for you when you go into the promised land. His power has not changed. His promises will not fail. And he gives two basic promises in this particular passage of Scripture. The first is, God says, I am for you. God says, I am for you. It says, moreover, the Lord, your God, will send a hornet among them until those who are left to hide themselves from you are destroyed. But the Lord, your God, will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them till they are destroyed. He will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. And no one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. But there, the promise there is great. Because they're still going to have to fight the battles. They're going to have to swing the swords. They're going to have to march to battle. They're going to have to get out on the battlefield and, and do what it takes to win a fight. But as they do, God is going to work with them. God is going to be for them. God is going to be on their side. In such a way, it's not that God's cheering them on. You can do it. Come on. Right there. No. God is for them. As they fight, God fights with them. God is actively... On their side. That's a promise for them. When you go into the land, you fight the battles. I'm for you. I'm on your side. And no matter what you do, I will ensure victory as you follow me and as you do my will. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe God is for you? Do you believe that God is on your side? You know, the sad truth is, for many believers, we do not believe that God is always on our side. We are not convinced that God is for us. So what I want to do this morning is take some time and look at a passage of Scripture that reminds us about how much God is for us. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Page 863. Romans 8. And, and keep your finger in Exodus because we're going, or Deuteronomy because we're going back. Romans 8. And we're going to start in verse 31. Now, we, I wish we had time to cover all of Romans 8 because Romans 8 is fantastic. Take some time. Read Romans 8. Read it carefully. Read it slowly. Read it often. Because there are some wonderful, powerful Amazing promises given to believers in this particular chapter. But all that, all that Paul has written before leads him to ask a question in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul has basically given the case in the first 30 verses that God is for us. God is for us. God is for you. God is for me as believers in Jesus Christ. And if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Well, the answer is no one that ultimately matters. But he shows the different ways God is for us. God is for us 
and his promises. For he who did not did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We talked about this last week. The biggest promise God could ever give is that his son would come and die on the cross for our sins. God gave that promise and God kept that promise. And if God will keep that promise, which is the most, can't we trust that he will keep the promises which are least? If God will send his son to die for our sins, won't he then do everything else he has said he will do? God is for us in his promises. But God is for us when it comes to condemnation. Right? So then, since God is for us, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will condemn us now that God has saved us? Is what he's asking. Is it God who has justified us? God is the one who went to all the effort of coming up with the gospel message and the plan of salvation. God is the one that when we repented of our sins and believed in Jesus, He's the one that declared us to be not guilty and has forgiven our sins. So is God going to condemn us? No. No, He's not. Who is He who condemns? Is it Christ who died? Furthermore, has risen. And even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So does Jesus then condemn us? Well, let's think that through. Jesus is the one that came and lived a perfect life and died a horrific death and rose from the dead. And now intercedes for us. Intercedes, right? He prays for us. He, he seeks our best. First John Chapter 2, verse 1 says that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. And what I love about that is it says that, that this things are written, that the idea is that we're not to sin. Right? That's God's will is that we do not sin. But if we do, guess what Jesus is? Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Think about that. If any man sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus does not condemn you because Jesus died for your sins. And Jesus is always your advocate with the Father. So God is for us when it comes to condemnation. So what about trials and hardships? Well, God is for us when trials and hardships come. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, the sword. Now, all of those are bad things. Tribulation, hard times of life, just hard times in general. Distress, right? Distress is also hard times, but I think it carries with the idea of some sort of emotional issues too, where we're not only having a hard time, but we're having a hard time dealing with it. Persecution, that specifically, we're suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Famine. We, in nakedness, we don't have enough. Do, do, I don't have enough to provide my basic necessities of life. Peril, my life is in danger. Sword probably refers to not just life in danger, but suffering, life and death for Jesus. So those are those are bad, right? So if that comes into our life, does that show that God is no longer for us, as it is written? For your sakes, we are killed all the day long, are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Nope, can't look at the 
issues of life and determine whether or not God is for us. God is is for us. And all of these things in such a way to ensure that if we are His people called by His name, who love Him and are seeking to do His will, we are more than conquerors through any trial or hardship or difficulty that may come into our life. Not because we're awesome, because He's awesome. He can ensure we are more than conquerors through all of these things. God is for us in the hard times of life. And, and just generally, God is for us forever. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing in all of creation that can change the fact that God is for us as believers. Believer, are you certain that God is for you? When the enemy brings accusations and condemnation against you, are you certain that God is for you in that time? When life gets difficult and the hard times come, are you sure that God is for you when that happens? When you face spiritual battles, I mean, the idea of principalities and power means evil spiritual forces. When we face spiritual battles, are you sure in the midst of that that your God is for you? You must be. You need to be. If you're not sure that God is for you, you'll always be afraid. You'll always be concerned. Years ago... First time I ever, I didn't go to church camp as a kid. I never went, go ahead and turn back to Exodus. I never went until I was a grown up as a youth pastor. And as a young youth pastor with more energy than sense, we, we had pillow fights every night with all the kids. And there were three of us on one team. It was me, the pastor from the Bigsby Church, and the evangelist who was the youth pastor from a church in Tulsa. And we determined that no matter what, we would never turn on each other. Never. So all of the kids would attack us. All of them. And there was like, how many kids did we take that year, Kelly? 70, 80 kids? 70, 80 boys attacking us with pillows. And we won every fight because we were bosses. No, we, we won every fight because we never turned on each other. I was sure they were always on my side. So no matter what happened... I was never afraid that I was never going to get hit from behind. The guys beside me were never going to attack me. And no matter what, we won. Now, the thing is, with the kids, kids didn't have that same confidence. They were like a pack of wolves. One of them went down, everybody pounced on them. And so they they imploded, and they were afraid to run at us more often than not because they weren't sure the people with them were actually on their side. So there is confidence in knowing someone is on your side. There is confidence in knowing someone has your back no matter what's going on. And when that someone is Almighty God, how much confidence does that give you? How much encouragement is found there? The promises of God will not fail. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God is for you now and forever. It will not change. The second promise is, I am with you. Verse 21, 
shall not be terrified of them. For the Lord your God, the great and the awesome God, is among you. Man. He's not on the sidelines cheering them on. He's not on the other side saying, come to me. He's right with them. As they go to fight, their God will be with them in the mix. He will be right there at their side. I was talking to a lady in the nursing home this Friday. And I read this to her and we were talking about it after I read it. And she honed in on verse 21 and said she, she's convinced that she can face anything. Anything life throws. As long as she knows that her God is with her. The promise that our God is with us. That to me is one of the great promises of Scripture. He is always there. He is always with us. And when our God is with us, it frees us from fear. This is one of my favorite parts of, the, of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, the valley of the shadow of death speaks to the time of death, but I think it speaks to more than that as well. The valley of the shadow of death, it speaks to the hard times of life. It speaks to the places where there's more darkness than light. There's more problems than solutions. There's more confusion than answers. There's more enemies than friends. There's more hurts than rest. We all go through the, the valley of the shadow of death multiple times through our lives. David says, as he walks through that, I, I will fear no evil. Now, when I do this with the kids at chapel at school, I always tell them it would be easy to stop there and think that David's reasoning for not be afraid would be David. Let's face it, David was kind of awesome. He was just almost a superhero. David, as a teenager, he fought Goliath with a slingshot and won. He, he led armies into battle. He was a, a mighty warrior for God. And so it would be easy to say, well, yeah, David's not going to fear the evil and the shadow of death because David's David. I'm not David. But David's freedom from fear wasn't in his own fighting abilities and his prowess. For you... Are with me. There's, there is David's comfort. There is David's encouragement. His God is with him. One reason I like to read stuff like this from David is because David was not an ivory tower theologian. David did not live a life set apart from the real world. David did not live a life that was ease and comfort and, and then write, suck it up and deal with it. David wrote from a, as a person who knew what it was to be in the valley of the shadow of death. He knew what it was to have his king turn on him and try to hunt him and kill him. He knew what it was to have a city he saved tell the king where he was so that they, the king could kill him. He knew what it was to have a son betray him and rebel against him. He knew what it was to have a wife that hated him. He knew what it was to have people not appreciate the things that he had done. David went through the dark valleys, the shadows of death. He, he knew all about that. And yet he could say, I'm not afraid because God's with me. And if my God is with me, then I can handle anything that the world throws. 
Psalm 23 is interesting. Because it talks about the Lord is my shepherd and him leading us. And he talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And one thing I always take from that is that there are some valleys that just have to be walked through. You know what? David was following God. He was doing the will of God. And yet he walked through the dark valley of the shadow of death. The Savior that leads us to the the green pastures and the still waters. At times he's going to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. Because some valleys, they just have to be walked through. But it is walked through. I don't make my home in the valley of the shadow of death. That's not the place where I'm meant to live. But it's something I have to walk through. But as I walk through it, I don't have to be afraid. For my God is with me. So no matter what you do in life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, your God is with you. He has not abandoned you. He has not left you. You are not alone. He is always there. He's always at work. He is always with you. So no matter where you go, no matter how you go, your Savior's there. Knowing, knowing that your God is there, well, that frees you from fear. We can be courageous. We don't have to be afraid because my Savior is near. When I was a kid, my dad was a hunter. We, we hunted a lot. And we went into the woods. And dad didn't hunt at the edge of the woods. We went, went deep in. And a lot of times we were out after dark. And as a kid, I didn't much like the woods after dark. I had seen horror movies. I knew what lurked in the dark and waited on me. And if ever I was by myself in the dark in the woods as a kid, I was, I was petrified. It was all I could do not to just scream like a girl and run to somewhere I thought would be safe. But if my dad was with me, I wasn't afraid. Because my dad, my dad was a tough Muldoon. I mean, heaven help the monster that jumped Jimmy Ross. And I didn't, I mean, we walked through the woods night after night, late in the night. As long as dad was there, as long as I could see him, I knew he was with me. I was never afraid. If we know our our, our father, Savior is with us. We do not have to be afraid. The power, the presence of God frees us from fear. My friend Specialist Martin, he regretted bailing on that mission as long as I knew him. Because, I mean, that mission was somewhat epic. It was legendary for a while. And he was the guy that cried and turned around and left. And he, he regretted it for as long as I knew him. But no matter how much he regretted it, there was never any going back. He never got a do-over. We got in so much trouble, nobody ever tried a mission like that again. It's just the way it was. If you're here and you're afraid, you may well be considering giving up on something you know you're supposed to do. Giving up on something that you want to do. And let me encourage you. Don't let your fears give you a regret that you'll experience later in life. 
Instead, trust that the power and promises of God, they free you from that fear. If you're here and you've already let something keep you, let fear keep you from doing something. You can't go back, but you can start again if you let the power and the presence of God keep you, free you from those fears. In this time that we have as a response, use it to seek the Lord. Use it to call out and say, Father, help me not to be afraid. Let me be sure that your power has not changed. Give me confidence that your promises will not fail. That you are with me and you are for me. And give me courage to do all that is in my heart for your will and for your glory. Let's stand.